Exodus chapter 20 then, and I'm reading verses 8 to 11. God said to his people, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That'd be great if you could keep that open. There's also uh, on the back of the notice sheet an outline of where we're going in the next little while before we share the Lord's Supper together. It's, uh, it's often said, don't know if this is your experience, that we live in one of the busiest ages in human history. You ask some friends how they're doing, at least one of them is bound to say, I am really busy. Some of us may even struggle to remember a time when we weren't busy. Um, a few years ago, Emily, my wife, banned me from answering the question, how are you, by saying I'm busy, saying we're just in a busy season. She said the season has been running for about 15 years, so we need to change the record a little bit. It's easy, though, to be almost defined by a constant juggling of the balls and trying to keep all of the plates spinning. It was never meant to be this way. Um, Back in 1930, John Maynard Keynes, the uh, British economist, predicted confidently of his grandchildren's generation, which I guess is probably you, or I don't know which generation that is. It's one of us, I'm sure, that uh, his grandchildren would only ever work three hours a day, and uh, they would only do so by choice, because economic progress and technological advance was going to change the world so much Um, Social psychologists even started wondering how we would fill up all of our free time. Uh, They obviously hadn't heard of social media and Netflix, but they were sort of half right about the change that uh, technology and economic growth would have on our world. They'd been greater than anyone could have predicted at the time. And yet, we've ended up in a world of time poverty. Uh, The poor need to hold down lots of jobs and work every hour they're given just to make ends meet. The rich, we're told, not only increasingly stressed by work, but also by the pressure to maximize their leisure time and then to brag about it humbly on Instagram. Back in 1970, there was a Swedish economist who pictured the life of a successful executive as being someone who would be drinking Brazilian coffee, smoking a Dutch Cigar, sipping a French cognac, reading the New York Times, listening to a Brandenburg concerto, entertaining his Swedish wife, all at the same time and with varying degrees of success. Today, he or she would be on a Zoom meeting with Japan, no doubt checking emails, doing some online shopping, texting their kids, and watching The Crown on Netflix. In a survey, three-quarters of managers said that working late and at weekends was the only way they could manage their workload. Uh, A third said they had no time to enjoy the money that they were making. Five out of six said that they felt stressed by their work. Half said they had no time for their personal relationships. That is the life 
to which many of you are aspiring. It seems that we're always running, running, and running some more, but to where and for what and why? What is the point of it all? Why are we even alive? That's the big question that this fourth commandment is going to answer for us this evening. We've got four headings. You'll see them on the sheet. We're going to have to move pretty fast. We're barely going to scratch the surface in the time that we've got. But here's the first heading. We were made for God's rest. And the lesson here is that we must not live for work. Uh, When I talk about work, I'm talking not just about a job, but about our productive activity. For some of us, that's paid. For many of us, it's not. And the Bible is clear that work in itself is good, but it was never meant to be our God. So verse 8 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. goes on, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let me suggest two contrasting views of work that exist in our culture, both of which are challenged here. The first says that work is just grim. It's nothing but grim. Uh, Work is just a necessary evil that we have to endure because we have bills to pay. But the mantra goes, we don't live to work, we work to live. And so we talk about living for the weekend a lot. Um, You'll hear people on the radio talking about Wednesday as hump day because then you're halfway to the weekend when you're not working again. We obsess over holidays, uh, especially now that COVID's behind us and we're free to travel again. And the the vibe is that it's only when we're not working that we're truly alive. But here God says, maybe surprisingly, six days you shall labor and work, and that work is a, a good thing that is built into the very DNA of our existence and the way that God designed our world to work. Whatever you make of the six days of Genesis 1, they set a pattern that God is a God of work. Six days he worked to make heaven and earth. And when he made Adam, he put him to work and told him to fill the earth and to subdue it. So right from the beginning, work has been a a human duty. It's been a human privilege. It's been one of the things we were made for as well as being a part of God's good creation purpose for us. So work is good, but it's also painful. When Adam and Eve turned from God in Genesis 3, part of his punishment was to make their work hard. Up until then, work had always been joyful and satisfying. Now it would cause them blood and sweat and tears as well. If there's a tendency among some to degrade the idea of work, we may be just as likely to idolize it. Some can't wait for work to end. For others, work is everything. One of the first questions we tend to ask each other is, what do you do? And then we judge each other according to the answers we hear. And it's easy for our whole sense of identity and self to be bound up in our work. It's the cult of careerism. I am what I do. My work doesn't just 
pay the bills. It defines me. Very few, I suspect, actually say the words out loud, but for huge numbers in our society, it's the way we live. When there's a a clash between career and family or between work and hobbies, work wins. I want to suggest that we pay a pretty heavy price when we worship our work. We'll all know people who have sacrificed marriages and children and friendships and hobbies and even their own physical and mental health on the altar of success and career. And we do that at least in part because we believe the lie that our value is found in our success, in our achievement, in making it further and faster up the ladder than anyone else. I've told the story before of a businessman on holiday in Brazil uh, sitting on the beach one morning when he saw a local fisherman returning to the shore with his daily catch. He asked him, how long does it take you to catch your fish? And the fisherman replied, it's just a short while. Then I go home. Uh, I play with my kids. Sometimes I have a siesta with my wife. Evening comes, I go out, I meet my friends in the village for a drink. We play the guitar and we sing and we dance through the night. Uh, The businessman was keen to offer some help. He said, listen, I have a PhD in business management. So let me tell you what you ought to be doing with your life. You should stay out at sea longer each day and catch more fish. I said, well, why on earth would I do that? He said, well, then you can sell the extra fish that you don't need. And over time, you're going to have enough money to buy a bigger boat. And then you'll be able to catch even more fish and you'll be able to make even more money. And then if you keep reinvesting your profits back into the business before long, you're going to have a whole fleet of boats and you're going to have loads of other fishermen working for you. You can start a factory, you can sell your produce all over the world, you can even float your company on the stock exchange. And the fisherman said, well, then what will I do? And the businessman said, well, eventually... It's brilliant. You'll be able to retire to a small village by the sea. You'll be able to wake up early in the morning, maybe just catch one or two fish that you need for yourself for the day. You'll be able to go home. Your kids will have left home by then, but you'll be able to take a siesta with your wife. Evening comes, you can meet your friends. You can uh, have a drink with them. You can play the guitar. You can sing and dance all night. It's a story that's designed to ask us what we're living for. And work is good, but it's not God. We weren't made for work alone. We were made to enjoy God, to love him, to live in an unblemished relationship with him. And this commandment starts with the word remember for a reason. It's because we're prone to forget why we're alive, that we're designed to function at our best When the thing at the center of our life is not work or anything else, actually, but God himself. When he made us, he designed us so that we'd function best if we labor and toil for six days. And then on the seventh, we hit the reset button, we rest. And you know, whether we're believers or not, I'm persuaded if we depart from that pattern built into creation for any extended period of time. It won't be good for us. We'll pay the cost personally. Um, The challenge 
goes in a couple of different directions at the same time here, I guess. Uh, I remember one minister telling a group of students who had been arguing about the Sabbath for weeks, um, you spend far too much time worrying about the rights and wrongs of the second half of the commandment, about whether it's okay to finish your essay on Sunday and nip to Tesco's to buy some milk. You guys, he said, need to spend more time worrying about the first half of the commandment, six days you shall labor. I don't want to presume that's true of you. I know the pressure for deadlines to fit everything else into life is huge. But there is definitely a point there that some of us will need to hear. Some are prone to idleness, to laziness. We need to remember that God tells us to work at all things as though we were working for him. Whatever it is that we give ourselves to in the day. It's right that we should labor and toil for the great majority of our week. But for others, our idol is not idleness, but activism. There's a competitiveness. Someone was talking to me about this just the other day. We don't want to think that others are getting ahead of us. They're spending more time in the library than I am, so they might get better marks, so I need to grind even harder. Maybe perfectionism. Some can even carry around a false guilt that makes us feel like we have to be busy. We won't let ourselves stop and enjoy the good things that God has given to us. A friend said to me, I don't think of my wife as a human being. She's more of a human doing because she's so relentless in all that she does. But we're not just here to work We're not just here to achieve. So it is worth just taking a step back every now and then and asking ourselves whether we are building enough rest into our weekly cycle. That's not the only thing the Sabbath command will ask us, but it's an important question because we were made for God's rest. We mustn't live for work. Second, we were saved for God's rest. Uh, We must live for God. I think these points are going to get a bit quicker as we go. You're hoping so. Uh, I know. You may know there's a second copy of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. Did you know that? So uh, we might just turn there for a second. Deuteronomy chapter 5. This second list is virtually identical. It was uh, preached by Moses to Israel when they were just about to enter the promised land after their time in the wilderness. One of the big differences between the two lists is the reason that is given for this fourth uh, commandment. So I think if you turn to page 150, you should find it. And if you glance down, verses 12 to 14 will look pretty familiar. But then verse 15 says, this is the reason for the Sabbath commandment here, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the reason this time isn't creation, but salvation. If the big lesson of point one is that because of creation, we mustn't live for work, here the big lesson is that because of salvation, we must live for God. The Sabbath was never meant just to be about taking time off and having a a good work-life balance. It was meant to be about remembering our salvation. It was meant to be about reorienting our life towards God. It's called in the text, a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
Not just rest from work, but rest with God. Our society's attitude to Sundays has changed uh, beyond belief in my lifetime. Some of you will find this hard to believe. Do you know the first um, Sunday football match that for screens and uh, minds for so many these days wasn't played until 1974, the first supermarket uh, wasn't allowed to open on Sundays until 1994, as recently as that. It didn't mean that everyone was in church on a Sunday, but it did mean that the day was different, that it was a, a shared day of national rest. Now, I'm not sure it's the church's job to be trying to enforce Christian morality on a secular society, but it does seem to me that we can observe that there's been a, a huge cost to the general flattening of the week that we've witnessed over the last 50 years or so. There's been a, a cost that is physical and psychological. I think it's pretty severe. There's been a cost in human relationships and families that is tragic. But the greatest cost has been spiritual. It's so easy for us to be so busy pursuing wealth and pleasure that we rarely stop to dwell upon the God in whom we live and move and have our being. I asked if we were making enough time for rest. That's a question. The bigger question is, are we making enough time for God? When Jesus told the parable of the sower, he identified three weeds that can grow up and strangle our spiritual fruitfulness. He talked about the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things. And uh, we see it all the time. Someone comes to church, they have a real interest in, in Jesus. But the, the crunch comes, they're so busy pursuing success and making sure they don't miss out on anything. They never really give the time that is needed to engage with the claims of Christ. And so whatever interest they had in him ends up withering on the vine. Well, there's someone who does believe in Jesus, but their life is just so full of work and hobbies and socializing and building a good CV that they make very little time to read the Bible and pray. And uh, if they get a little busy in their week or they get a better offer. Life groups is the first thing that goes out the window. Even church is squeezed in around other things. There are no rules in the Bible, I don't think, saying that we must absolutely, as a matter of law, read our Bible and pray every day and be in a life group and be in church twice on a Sunday. For some, there are seasons in life where it just won't be possible. There'll be good reasons not to do some of those things. But there'll be plenty of bad reasons not to do them as well. And there's a whole lot in the Bible that says that pursuing our relationship with God is meant to come before everything. And I guess I'm asking whether my own use of time and yours reflects that priority at the moment. I'm sure we would all be helped if we made ourselves set aside this one day of the week as a day in which we would stop chasing after all of the other great things in life that God has given us and actively pursue deeper fruitfulness 
in our walk with Christ instead. And you can put it to the test, if you like. I'm persuaded with God at number one, enjoying his rightful place in our life. We'll actually end up deriving more joy from the other things in our life rather than less. Some of us were thinking about that in Ecclesiastes this week. Third, this evening, we already enjoy God's rest. Um, I hope we can begin to see why Christians believe that this Sabbath law was given by God as a way of blessing his people, that it was for our good. Uh, He wanted us to keep life in perspective. He wanted us to flourish in our relationship with him. But by the time that Jesus came along, the Pharisees had taken God's law of freedom and turned it into an oppressive burden. Uh, The Mishnah, you may not have heard of, was a list of rules that had been written by Jewish leaders that were there to help people obey the Ten Commandments. Uh, It wasn't compiled officially until the end of the second century, but loads of it was knocking around in Jesus' day. The section on the Sabbath contained a further 1,521 laws that God's people had to obey if they wanted to keep the Sabbath commandment. So guess, how many stitches were you allowed to sew on a Sabbath? Well, not two, definitely, but one was okay. How many letters could you write? Again, not two, but one. How much straw could you carry on the Sabbath? Well, enough for one cow's mouthful, but not for two. There were over 1,500 laws like that that twisted so much God's law of blessing and made it a burden for his people. Elsewhere, Jesus said of the Pharisees, they tie up heavy loads and they put them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And their attitude to the Sabbath was a big part of that. So it's interesting that it's in the context of an argument about the Sabbath that Jesus said the words with which Dan began our service earlier. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In other words, stop listening to the Pharisees, because their man-made laws can only weary you and burden you, and come to me instead. All around us today, people invent laws. Some are religious, some are social. Religiously, you'll find people who tell you that to find God's blessing, you have to adhere to the five pillars of Islam or follow the sevenfold path of enlightenment or say however many Hail Marys and Our Fathers. Socially, you'll be told that to be accepted by the liberal elite, you have to be inclusive of everyone and everything. And Jesus cuts through the lot of it and says, come to me. If you're burdened by the rules of man, you were made to live in the rest of a relationship with God. Come to me, listen to me, learn from me, and I will give you rest. It's a massive promise. And the reason that Jesus can keep it is because of who he is. 
said the Sabbath was uh, a Sabbath to the Lord. And Jesus called himself the Lord of the Sabbath because he is Lord and because he is uniquely able to give us the salvation rest of which the Sabbath was just a picture. The application this time is simply to rejoice. If you're someone who knows Jesus this evening, to rejoice in all that he's done for you. If it hadn't been for him, his death on the cross, every one of us would be lying dead in our sin. We would have zero chance of enjoying the rest of a relationship with God. But if we've trusted in him, and this would be the offer to anyone who doesn't yet know him, we can enjoy, we can know God's rest today. There's a great line in Psalm 116. The author is remembering how God saved him. And he says to himself, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. In a few moments, we're going to receive this bread and juice. I want to encourage you, if you are a believer here this evening, to return anew to the bountiful kindness and love that God has lavished on you in and through Jesus, to return to your rest. I'm sure some of us have been distracted from him in recent days. Maybe the pressure of work has preoccupied us. Maybe some of us have been disobedient to him actively. The pleasures of sin have deceived us. Maybe we're just dull and cold in heart before him. The pains and sorrows of life have numbed us. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Finally and briefly, we eagerly await God's rest. I'm sorry we're zipping through the Bible in such a short period of time, but the letter to the Hebrews was written to some Christians who were tempted to drift away from God's rest, from the salvation that they had in Jesus. I'm going to get us to flick to Hebrews chapter 3, where we are going to find the writer. I'll give you a page when I get there. We're going to find the writer urging his readers to learn from the mistake that Hebrews chapter... It's quite hard to talk and find a page at the same time, I'm discovering. Page 1002 is where we need to be, page 1002. He's uh, urging his readers not to make the same mistake that Israel made back in the wilderness in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 3, page 1002. They'd hardened their heart to God's word. That was their mistake. As a result, he'd barred them from entering the rest of his promised land. And then in chapter 3, verse 12... He says to them, if you're there on page 1002, right-hand column, halfway down, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. On to verse 15, as it's said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And crucial for us, just over the column onto page 1003, chapter 4, verse 9. He says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So we're getting it. There's a Sabbath rest that still awaits New Testament Christians. It's the rest of heaven itself. And rest is such a great word to describe the glorious new creation that awaits all who've trusted in Jesus. I made a list of some of the things that we will finally be free from when we go to be with our Lord. We will enjoy rest from all sin, from our own and from everyone else's. Won't it be great never to sin again? Wouldn't it be wonderful never to be sinned against? Rest from the curse of a fallen world? Wouldn't it be great to know that good things will stay good and will never perish or spoil or fade? Rest from our enemy, the devil. No more will he prowl around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Rest from doubt. Rest from all opposition and persecution. Rest from tears and pain and suffering and depression and death. Rest with God. No longer living by faith but by sight. Rest in an unblemished relationship with our Lord. We enjoy the first installment of that rest now in Christ. That's what Jesus meant when he said, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. But there remains a rest, a Sabbath rest for God's people. And the key way that we obey this fourth commandment today is not by arguing about whether you're allowed to go to Tesco's on a Sunday to buy some milk if you run out. It's a good conversation to have. Do come to the question time and bring it with you. Key way you obey this commandment is first by coming to Jesus for rest. And then in the words of chapter 4, verse 11, striving to enter the rest of heaven. By making sure that we don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but that we give ourselves to spurring one another on towards love and good deeds humble obedience to God's word so that we're not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. All around us, people live for the prizes of this world and our writers saying we're going to need each other's help to strive to enter our future rest with Jesus. You'll know that Christians hold differing views on the Sabbath. Some think the New Testament requires us to take Sundays as a Sabbath, as a direct equivalent of the Sabbath that the Jews took on a Saturday in the Old Testament. If you hold that view, only works of necessity, uh, mercy, and ministry are permitted on a Sunday. Others say the letter of the Sabbath law doesn't bind us today, but the principles do. That's something we're all going to need to work through for ourselves. I want to encourage you not just to imbibe uncritically or to react against 
the view that you first encountered as a Christian, whether it was when you were growing up or uh, here in St. Andrews. So I want to ask you why you think what you think about the Sabbath. Have you thought these things through? But whichever view we take, it's important that we don't pass judgment on one another, but that each of us does what we think is right before the Lord. It'd be a shame if we spent so much time arguing about the rights and wrongs that we took our eyes off the Lord who made us and saved us for his rest. Most important of all is that we help each other to give to the Lord of the Sabbath the honor and glory that he deserves. That's not something we just do one day of the week, but all day, every day, as we await the Sabbath rest of heaven. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we want to thank you again for Jesus. We want to thank you that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And we want to thank you that because he is our Lord and God, he is able to give to us now a foretaste of the rest of the new creation to which this law pointed always. Uh, We've thought about lots of things this evening, uh, why we're made, the pattern that our week should take, the need for rest from work, We've thought about the need to hit the reset button, to remember you and to refocus upon you. Thought about the need to help one another to strive to enter your rest. We would pray for your help that we might reflect upon and discuss and question and work through what we've heard this evening, that we'd let go of anything that's unhelpful and hold on to anything that uh, is from you. And that you would help us, if necessary, to reorder our thinking in our days so that we might grow in our love for our Lord Jesus and help one another to strive to enter his rest. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.